you want to turn in your Bible, you can turn with me. We'll be uh, in Matthew looking at uh, chapter 12. And starting uh, January of 2000, we had started a pretty leisurely stroll through the gospel of Matthew. And we took a break this summer, looked at some other things. And so this Sunday, uh, we're going to be getting our journey through Matthew going again. And we've come up to chapter 12. And uh, I originally, I'm really excited to get to chapter 13, which is the, the chapter on the parables and was thinking about just kind of skimming over really quickly chapter 12. But then this past week when I started to really get into it, it's just, ah, oh, there's just too much good, important, appropriate things here. And so we're going to move through 12 uh, at, a, at a slower pace uh, or at a normal pace. So we're, we're not going to skip over it. We're, we're going to, to look at it. And uh, But what I want to do this morning is actually just reorient and remind ourselves, or all right, why are we looking at the gospel of Matthew? What can it do for us? How can it help us? What type of gift is this gospel to us? And how can its power be unleashed in our lives? So this morning is just kind of to, to review and, and preview or review and reorient. So as we're looking at Matthew, I don't know if you saw this past week, but uh, there was a old computer manual that sold at auction for $800,000. So I don't know if any of you, you know, pack rats, hoarders, like if you keep every like operational manual from the coffee machine that you got in 1976 and you, you, you know, like one day this could come in useful. Maybe it could. I mean, one day, who knows it, you could auction that off for something. Maybe. And you think, all right, how, what type of computer manual auction for $800,000? Well, it was one of the original uh, Apple II computer manuals. So maybe if you have one of those lying around, you can look from 1980. And then there was something unique about this manual because written on the inside of this manual was this little note that said, Julian, your generation is the first to grow up to com with computers. Go and change the world. Sincerely, Steve. And of course, here's a computer manual signed by the inventor of the, well, maybe the marketer, maybe not the actual inventor, uh, the marketer of the manual, and it's worth $800,000. And I mean, could you imagine what it'd be like to have this manual uh, that's that valuable? And one of the fascinating things, the Gospel of Matthew actually is a manual, not just how to use a computer, but a manual about life that is infinitely more valuable than $800,000. And it actually has been signed and sealed by the inventor of what it means to live and live life to the fullest. So it's one of those gifts to us. And one of the challenges often when you have these manuals is we either uh, just kind of disregard them or don't, don't have them when we need them. A friend of mine who just had their first child was lamenting that the child didn't come with the user's manual. So there's a lot he's not sure what to do. So some things you feel like you do need a manual that's not there, or you do have one and you don't use it. And one of the reasons we don't use it is because, I mean, they're just dreadfully boring. Many of them are written in such a way to cure insomnia. So it's not engaging reading. And then often we don't think we need it. But here, what Matthew is, is Matthew's gospel is a manual for life that's written in such a way that's engaging, that combines teaching and narrative, that's meant not just to give you information, but it's meant to lead to your transformation. 
And so it's an incredible gift. So what I want to do this morning is just remind ourselves of what a gift it is. A couple other images. Liz, if you want to pull up what it is, the Matthew's gospel, it's a pathway to help us walk in the way of the Lord. It's a blueprint for how Christ wants to build his kingdom and his church. And it provides the fundamentals for living the Christian life. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at three things that we actually looked at when we first uh, opened Matthew up in January 5th, 2000. And I was just so struck by going back because we had no idea what was in store for us as a community, as a country, as a world on that day, but uh, how much more we need the things now that it offers. So a couple things. First, what uh, Matthew's gospel, uh, the reason why we need this is because life is short and Matthew's gospel will help us not to waste it. You know, this is a manual on how to live, how to not waste your life. Started reading this week an interesting book called 4,000 Weeks by uh, Oliver Berkman. And it's kind of like a, almost like an anti-productivity, productivity book. But the way he sets this book up, he says, the average human lifespan is absurdly, insultingly short. It says, assuming you live to be 80, you have right at 4,000 weeks. And nobody needs telling you there's not enough time. We're obsessed with our lengthening to-do list, our overfilled inboxes, trying to find work-life balance and the ceaseless battle against distraction. And we're deluged with advice on how to become more productive, more efficient with life hacks to optimize every day. And such techniques often end up just making things worse. The sense of anxious hurry grows more and more intense and still the most meaningful parts of life seem they're just beyond us. And still we rarely make the connection between our daily struggles of time and the most important time management issue of all. What do we do with our 4,000 weeks? And it's asking this question, how do we not waste this very brief, very short life? And one of the things Matthew's gospel is going to do, it's a gift because it helps us hone in on those things that are most essential so we don't waste our life. You, know, you walk through the, the picture that Matthew paints of Jesus. You walk with him step by step and you hear him proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And you hear him as he preaches and as he teaches. And then you get to see him as he's healing what's broken and he's defeating what's evil. And then he's going to summon you to abundant life now. Life is short, it's fleeting, but you can have abundant life now and then you can have everlasting life in the life to come. And he summons you to both of those things. Abundant life now, eternal life after you die. So that, that weight of only 4,000 weeks doesn't hang over us like a despair-inducing burden. It's actually a liberation that is 4,000 weeks to prepare us for eternity. And so Matthew can help us have that proper perspective. It can help shape our identity and who we are because it's going to take the things that the world scoffs at, the things the world mocks, like being poor in spirit or being meek or mourning. And it's going to take those things and reframe those and show you how in many ways these are the path to life. This is the path to really living well, and it can shape who you think you are and your values. You know, every culture, what every culture in the world has a identity formation process. 
that is working on everyone almost subconsciously. You're not even aware of the way it's shaping your sense of who you are and what matters, what our values are. And Matthew's gospel is a very intentional identity shaping uh, uh, process, platform. And then one of the things it'll do is help us realize that the most important things, some of the most important things about those 4,000 weeks aren't so much about who we are, but it's who we uh, live with in our communities and our relationships. Uh, most people, when they come to the end of the life, the, their life, the thing they, uh, their regrets most often revolve around relationships. And their, their joys, the things that made life worth living. And one of the things we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, the key uh, idea is that the quality of your life is dependent on the quality of your relationships. And it's actually a guide, a manual on how to have real, genuine quality of relationships. First with yourself, with God, and then with, with others. Matthew's gospel also gives us a tremendous window in what it means to have meaning and then to live with purpose and live on mission. It's amazing how you see Jesus acting out in the world and he calls us to do the same things he's doing. You hear him preaching and teaching and then he trains us so we preach and teach. You see him healing what's broken and then he empowers us so we can heal what's broken. You see him defeating those things that are evil and then he equips and empowers his people so they can defeat what's evil. And so he draws us in to this incredible restoration and renewal project that we can then join him as he's making all things new. So what does it mean not to waste your life, not to waste those 4,000 hours? I mean, don't you want to live that way? And if you want to live that way, Matthew's gospel is this wonderful invitation that says, cry out to him, cry out to him and ask him to help you, free you so you can understand the gospel, the good news of what he's done for us. In Christ, cry out to him and ask him to help you live a life that is both whole and healthy. And wholeness, this is another theme of the Sermon on the Mount, wholeness is holiness. The path of true holiness, a wholeness is holiness. So ask him to help you so you can really live a whole life where you're flourishing and then you can belong to and participate in loving relationships that love you and form you. And then you can find purpose in your life that gives meaning where you join him and it's not wasted. So Matthew can help us not waste our life. Another thing that it can help us, we say is life is not only is it short, but life is complicated. I mean, haven't you felt that over the last year and a half? Life is complicated and Matthew's gospel can help us simplify it. You know, one of the great things he does is he embodies core teaching in such a way that anyone, whether you're two years old or 102, you can remember and you can hold in your mind and it can simplify what matters most in your, in your life. You take like just the Lord's prayer. Like if you, if the, if you could only remember and then act on the Lord's prayer, that simple prayer and progression would, would change every aspect of your life. 
It would give you the three commandments to help orient you to what's most important with hallowing God's name in worship and what's most important in mission by bringing his kingdom, helping his kingdom to come, making these realities uh, on earth the same as they are in heaven. What real discipleship is, is his will being done in our life. And it would help you know, how do I live out in the world? The way I live out in the world is he provides my daily bread for us. So I live generously and uh, hospitably. And then I, I, I forgive and I remember that I forgive others with the same grace that I've been forgiven. So my life is marked by generous hospitality and forgiveness. But I understand my own weakness. I understand my own frailty. I'm not proud or puffed up. And I ask him, don't lead me into temptation because I don't know if I could stand. And so you live humbly. I mean, if that's all you know, and that orients every single day of your life, you'll live a tremendous God honoring life. And so Matthew helps us to simplify uh, our complicated life. But then third, life is also confusing. You know, things that are complicated also become confusing. And Matthew can just help give us clarity. You know, one of the beautiful things about the gospel is the, the, the wonderful way it's structured and ordered so it can bring clarity to us. So as you think about those three things, like which do you feel that you need the most? You know, do you need help to, to, to understand what it means to have significance in life? Or do you need help with this simplifying life? Or do you need help clarifying uh, life? Matthew can help us in all those areas. All right, so, so if it can, I mean, in one sense, that sounds wonderful. I, I would love more simplicity, clarity, and meaning in my life. How do I actually access it? How do I make it real in my life? And one of the things, if we're going to experience its power, we need a couple things to hold in our mind. And one is to kind of hold the framework that the, the gospel is operating on. All right, so to kind of set this up, because Matthew actually gives you a framework to help you understand the shape of history, like world history, then the shape of Jesus's life and his ministry, but then also the shape of your own life and growth in maturity and development. If you can actually see the pattern, it unlocks the power that's inherent in the teaching. So one of the patterns that uh, we've looked at before, but I want to remind you of, is the, the structural pattern of the movement from the establishment of the priesthood to the king, to the prophet. So that movement of priest, king, prophet. And when we were looking at Matthew's genealogy, you can look in chapter one, Matthew orders his genealogy in such a way where there's this narrative arc where he's taking you through the entire Old Testament. But that actual narrative arc as it's moving through the whole Old Testament isn't just the, the pattern of history for the history of the world up until that point. It's also the pattern of development in Jesus's life in Matthew's gospel. And then it's also the pattern of development for a life lived well by us. So the three acts from chapter one, the first act is from Abraham to David. And the important thing in that act, that movement was the establishment of the priesthood. And the age of the priesthood is so important because it's here. It's at the foundation that we establish the fundamental reality that God's presence is the most important reality in life. Life is about presence. The, the, the great fall at the fall was being cast out of his presence. God's presence is the point. 
And he desires to dwell with his people. So it's in the priesthood that we're learning what does it mean to actually hallow his name. And the priesthood, in essence, is all about two things. It's about Torah, how we walk, how we live, and tabernacle, dwelling with him. But the key in the age of the priesthood is God gives commands, and it's their job to obey. Commands, obey. Obedience. First age, the age of the priesthood. And then that second age, that second movement, is the establishment and formation of the kingdom, of God's people as a kingdom, the rise of the king, who the true king is, the rise of David, the rise of Solomon. And one of the key things about the kingdom is the king builds the temple, so makes the the presence permanent. But the whole point of the king is learning how to rule well, rule wisely. And the two key pieces of the king's rule is to rule with righteousness and justice. So it's all about wisdom, developing wisdom. But the whole challenge with wisdom, developing wisdom, is how to live a God-honoring life in such, at times where there's no clear command. So in the age of the priesthood, everything is prescribed, and you have a clear command. Do this, don't do that. But there's many areas of life where there's not a clear command. Life is ambiguous. So how do we live well then? And that's the formation of the, king, uh, the kingdom, the king. And that actually, in Matthew's gospel, the way you trace that story is chapters 1 through 7 are establishing, in essence, Jesus as the new Moses. Establishing the new priesthood. He ascends to the hill. He's God with us. And then he gives us his authoritative word from the mountain about how we're supposed to live. He's the new Moses with the new priesthood. But the section we're in now from about 8 to about 16-ish is the movement of the formation of the kingdom. That Jesus is king. And if you look at chapter 12, some of the things you're going to see. What are the issues that it means that, all right, we're confessing that Jesus is king Like in verse 7, when he's having this, uh, it's all about controversy too. The whole chapter is how do you handle and deal with public controversy? Like in verse 7, when he's uh, in controversy with the Pharisees, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. See, he is the king, and he determines who is guilty, who is innocent, and one of the things that violates his justice is when you condemn the innocent. And so he's the one who determines that. You can see this theme. It it quotes Isaiah in chapter 18. It's so fascinating. Here's my servant in whom I've chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. So he's the king and he's proclaiming justice. Verse 21, he will, or 20, he will not stop until... Justice, he has led justice to victory. So part of the king is he's bringing in justice. But then what's so interesting about this whole chapter is the way he's bringing in justice is around a debate about the Sabbath. So it's like, what does Sabbath have to do with the real institution of justice? So that'll be one of the things to rescue, uh, wrestle with in this chapter. And you can see it over and over that he's the son of David. He's the king. And then he tells them that uh, in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the day of judgment. And then in verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up on the day of judgment. He's making a declaration that he is the king and he's the one who establishes authoritative judgment. He is 
the judge. So where we are in Matthew is we're in that section of the formation of what it means that Jesus is the king. And then he's going to all the parables in chapter 13. Tell us what, what are we praying for when we pray that his kingdom come? What does it look like? How does it come? Who he is? And then the third great movement is a movement from uh, kingdom to the prophets and the age of the, the prophetic age. In the age of the prophets, the prophets are the voices who cry out in the wilderness. The prophets are the voices who speak to the king and the priest and call them to live in line with who God is and what he's said. And the reason why the prophet is the kind of culmination, because the prophet's the one who's summoned into the presence of the living Lord. He ascends into the Lord's presence and hears the Lord's voice. And then he goes and speaks as the authoritative spokesman on behalf of the Lord. And so they call God's people to love the Lord with all their heart. They call God's people to love their neighbor as themselves. So that kind of trajectory, that movement, that historical development of movement from priesthood to kingdom to the prophetic age is the plot line of the Old Testament. It's the plot line of Matthew, because we're going to see Jesus walk through each of those movements. But really one of the most fascinating things is it can be the plot line of, of your life and what it means to grow and develop. Think about at least how understanding this, this plot line can help us understand who Jesus is and, and, and what the gospel is. Because it's very easy to, um, to focus on one aspect of his work as the, the priest, the priestly aspect of offering forgiveness for our sins, or uh, focus uh, just on the kingly aspect of his rule and reign or the prophetic aspect where he speaks to us about how we're supposed to live. That gives us a full balanced picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. But as I close, I just want you to think about how that can actually help you make sense of your own development in, in life. You know, the age of the priesthood really, in some sense, could be equated with, with childhood. It's the age of obedience. It's the age where you're learning, and it's your job to learn and to receive and then the age of the, the king, kingship, is where you've learned all of those things. Now you're stepping out and trying to have wise implementation of authority. So you're trying to rule well, exercise wise use of authority. And then the age of the prophet is when you can speak authoritatively and give counsel. And there's many um, kind of many problems can happen in life when one of these Seasons derails. I mean, many people derail at the, the age of the priesthood, that priest stage, where they just refuse to submit themselves to their mothers and fathers that are over them. They refuse to learn the basics. You know, in one sense, this great movement isn't just the movement to maturity as a person. It's really the movement you'll have to go through if you want to learn anything, if you want to learn anything. You know, med students, you know, med school is actually designed to encompass that three-stage movement in a very small window. So you have to learn all the facts. You have to get all of the data about the human body, and you learn all these things in a compressed fashion. And then you start to go and uh, slowly learn how to wisely implement all the things you know on a case-by-case -case basis and then eventually you get deemed a doctor. You know what doctor means? Doctor is Latin for teacher. 
That means you now have, because you, you have mastered the facts, you've demonstrated that you can, in a, a wise and life-giving way, uh, implement those facts, and now you're at a point where you can actually teach others, then you get to be deemed doctor. And that's the movement for how you learn anything. I mean, how you learn play the piano, how you learn to shoot free throws, how you can do, learn anything in life. So think about where you are just in, in life, in development. You know, one of the challenges is so many people, life derail at the very beginning, the priesthood stage where they're supposed to be uh, receiving and supposed to be learning. I'll never forget one of the most haunting interviews I've ever heard. It was probably five or six years ago, but it was from uh, it was by Rick Rubin. So Rick Rubin is uh, one of the most influential music producers uh, in the world. Uh, about a decade ago, Time Magazine put him as one of the 100 most influential uh, people on the planet. And he, he's known as the, the hit maker. Like if he produces one of your albums, it's going to be a, a hit. And so some of his, uh, some of the people he's cr uh, created hits for, Black Sabbath, Slayer, Metallica, Rage Against the Machine, Linkin Park, Shakira, Adele, Sheryl Crow, Lady Gaga. He's worked with LL Cool J, the Beastie Boys, Eminem, Jay-Z, and Kanye West. So pretty broad uh, resume, repertoire. And in an interview, it was kind of interesting because he said this completely tongue-in-cheek. He was joking. But there's some truth underneath it because someone was asked, like, all right, how do you do it? What's, is there a, a, a secret formula for creating these just mega, massive, like, rock and pop hits? And he said, yeah, actually, there is. There is a formula. He says, what you have to do is you have to capture the teenagers. And every teenager wants to rebel against their parents. So you find out what the parents value and like, and then you create music that attacks it. You got your mega hit. And so it's knowing that this is actually the process that we're going to intentionally derail it can actually get you wildly rich in this country, which is one of the interesting things to think about if you kind of, if your identity of yourself is that you're a rebel and you're going to rage against the machine, maybe you're not as much of a rebel as you think. You might just be an unwitting pawn in some corporate executive scheme to make more money. You might not be that rebellious. But the whole point of this stage is that we have to learn, we have to, we have to receive, and many things can go off the rail here. And it can happen in so many different areas. It can happen in things you're trying to learn or any, many areas. I'm amazed how much in, in just my field, in the ministry, how many people in their early 20s want to reimagine church. I say, well, before we reimagine anything, do we even know what it is? Do we have any idea what it's been for the last 2,000 years before we can reimagine it? Maybe if you're 65, we can start reimagining. But until, let's just learn what it is. And that's the priesthood. But then you move, the next movement is move into the age of the kingdom. And many midlife uh, crises, struggles kind of happen in this realm because this is the time when you're, maybe you're desiring more uh, freedom to exercise authority. Or one of the big challenges here in midlife is you want the fruit of the authority without the responsibility this is a violation. This is the way that the, the age of the, the king can be derailed, where you want the fruit. That's what happened to David with Bathsheba. Reach out for the forbidden fruit, the fruit of being king without the right and the responsibility. That's what happened to Gideon. Gideon wanted all of the fruits. That was his downfall, the fruits of being king, but not the rights 
and the responsibility. Or if you just feel a certain tension at a certain age in your life where you feel like, I, you know, I, I feel like I could accomplish or do so much more, but I'm not given the chances or opportunities. That's struggling with this age of what it means to wisely implement your authority. And the challenge at the age of the king is that so many of these things that we have to do and choose at that point uh, is a matter of wisdom. You know, there's no clear command. In many of these things, you're just choosing what's the best of all the bad options. And that's one of the challenges of the world we're living in now. I feel so sorry for the people who have to intentionally make public policy decisions because so many of these public policy decisions are framed as zero-sum moral decisions, and none of them are. It's almost impossible to make wise decisions if you don't have all the facts or all the facts seem to be contradictory. And then every decision you make is going to have costs, benefits, opportunities. It's going to have ramifications. And in so many things, all of the public policy decisions that are being debated uh, are ways to mitigate risk. And you can only mitigate risk if you understand what all the risks are. That's why it's such a challenge. So it's such a challenge. And the Bible says to pray for our leaders that they have wisdom because wisdom is knowing how to understand all of the different factors, all of these things and how they all work together and how everything you do is going to be a trade-off in some area and everything is going to have a cost. There's nothing that's not going to have some type of cost. And then are you aware with what that is and are you willing uh, to pay that cost? That's the wrestle of what it means to be a king. But then the final stage is what it means to be a prophet. And one of the great challenges in our world is because of social media, we have, uh, we have a country of 385 million prophets who all believe that my voice is the authoritative voice from heaven itself on issue A, B, C, or whatever it is. We all believe that we can speak truth to power and have an a, a, a voice and we'll voice it. And you know, the, the realm of the prophet is the realm of cast, having a vision, being able to come into the presence, in essence, of the Lord and call people to a certain future. But the great challenge is the future you're calling them to a false future. Calling them. See, the prophet is, in essence, the age of maturity. You've already learned all the things in the priesthood. You've already demonstrated that you can wisely apply those for flourishing. And then now you have an opinion and a voice where you can speak. And really that only comes with time. You know, the way that our world looks is you're in the prime of life when you're in your twenties, I guess. I don't know when the prime is. You know, I, I turn 42 tomorrow and people are teasing, well, oh, you're getting old. I say, like, well, actually, if this is your schema for the life lived well, I'm just moving into act two. And hopefully at some point we'll move into a place. The prime of our life should be when we move into the age of prophets where we actually have wisdom and know how it should be implemented in life. Our prime comes later. It's not when you're a post-pubescent 22-year-old. So where are you on this journey? Maybe you found yourself in an age where you're a priest and you're having to learn a whole new thing. I had no idea I would have to learn a new career at this stage. Or maybe it's your, the stage. You're in middle school. You're in high school. You're in college. This is the opportunity. This is the point of that stage. How can you do that stage well? Don't let the train derail at that stage. 
Or maybe you're in the, the kingly stage where it's your opportunity to exercise the authority you've been given in a small sphere. How, you, how can you do that well in such a way where people thrive? Or maybe you're in the prophetic stage, the stage of a prophet, where you, um, you know, the, the key piece of the prophetic stage is that you enter into the presence of the Lord. And you know what it means to pray and how dependent we are on real, genuine prayer to hear his voice so we can move forward. This is the call. Matthew's a great gift to help us understand how to live well in all of these stages and not to waste our life. So as we close, let's just pray. Let's pray for one another. Let's pray for all of us as we're all in these different stages. We all want to live in such a way where we don't waste our life and have it be meaningful. So let's pray. So well, Lord, we ask that you help us, help us to be liberated by our understanding of the good news of what you've done by your son. So we ask that you help our minds to be liberated. We ask that you would help us. Our desire is to be whole and healthy. But we see that wholeness only comes from holiness. So we ask that you help us. We ask that you help us where we can be secure in who we are, who you've called us to be. We ask that you would place us in a community where we can belong and that you would put in our lives loving relationships who would help us to grow and to mature and develop. And then we praise you despite of all of the difficulty and the darkness we see all around us. We thank you for your resurrection power that really is renewing all things. So we ask that you help us to know how we can do that in a small scale in the world that you've placed us. How can we join you in renewing all things? And Lord, now I pray for anyone who's find themselves in that stage of the priesthood where they just have to, they just have to obey and they have to learn and they have to um, follow. Help them to do that well. Help them to do that with a, an open mind and a generous heart. Pray for anyone who's in the stage of learning what it means to uh, be kingly and to exercise authority in a certain sphere that they've been given, whether it's sphere at home, whether it's sphere at work or in the neighborhood or in the community. We ask that you help them, help them to be wise and to, to rule whatever that, uh, that area is to do it well. And we pray for more prophets. We need more people who... Uh, are humble and can enter into your presence and to hear your voice and to call out to us. So we pray for that. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. So our holy and gracious Father in his infinite love, he made us for himself. But when we had sinned and we had become evil, uh, subject to evil and death, in his mercy, he sent his beloved son into the world for our salvation. And that by his son, by the Holy Spirit, the son became flesh. The son dwelt among us. And then once and for all, by his, his suffering and death, he stretched out his arms on the cross and gave himself so that we might be saved. And then by his resurrection, he broke the power of death. He trampled hell and Satan underneath his feet. And now he lives as our great high priest who sits at the right hand of the father and ushers, calls us to come into his presence. And so each week we celebrate that invitation. We celebrate that victory by uh, partaking in, in the Lord's Supper. And it's our weekly reminder of his body broken so we could be made whole and his blood shed so we could be forgiven. So on the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. 
This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.